Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. On today's show, we kick off our series on housing in Tucson, Finding Home. It's focused on discrimination, access, and affordability. Like most of the country, Tucson implemented racist and discriminatory housing practices during the 20th century. Joel Turner was a native of Tucson who grew up in the Dunbar neighborhood in the 1930s and 40s. After graduating from the University of Arizona with a chemistry degree, serving in the Korean War, and graduating from dental school in Tennessee, he returned to Tucson in 1965 and began looking for a place to live. Some areas I could not buy in. I looked at some houses over back towards the Arizona Inn. You had a lot of houses in there for sale. They wouldn't sell them to me. Oh, no, they wouldn't sell that to me. I used to go through there all the time. Guy would look at me and shuddering. I mean, uh, <laughs> they didn't want to sell to an Afro-American. They didn't want you in there. I was lucky to buy the house I bought. I had purchased a house in the vicinity of Grant and Country Club, and uh, we were in a completely white neighborhood. There were no Afro-Americans in that neighborhood at that time. At the very beginning, uh, a man came down who lived in the vicinity and uh, indicated that he came down to see if we were registered to vote. And I said, yes, we are, as a matter of fact. And then he proceeded to tell me that they had a covenant. I said, what is that? Well, you're not supposed to be living here. I said, well, I'm here. I bought the house. I have two guns, which I will use, starting with you, if necessary. And then I told him to leave, which he did. My neighbors right next to me, they were very cordial, very cordial. And next, the neighbor next to them was very cordial. And we never had any problems in the neighborhood after that, none. Uh, nobody bothered me. Nobody said hello. That didn't bother me. I didn't care if they spoke to me or didn't speak to me because I didn't come there to speak to them. I came there to live. That story was produced by Angus Anderson and comes from the UA Library Special Collections Archive Tucson Oral History Project. Unfortunately, Turner's story isn't unique. Jay Young, the director of the Southwest Fair Housing Council, says the official term for one type of discrimination is redlining. Redlining was a practice that uh, was created by the federal government back in the 30s as the New Deal gained steam and the federal government got involved in mortgage lending and, and the housing market. Uh, the federal government created maps uh, and those maps had literally red lines around neighborhoods that were uh, African-American, uh, immigrant neighborhoods, uh, basically non-white neighborhoods. And the purpose of those maps was to basically uh, let lenders know areas that were supposedly the lowest risk for lending. And those typically were all white neighborhoods. Um, and then there were grades under that. Uh, but the uh, basically neighborhoods that were considered uh, the riskiest to lend in uh, were African-American and minority neighborhoods. 
So what kinds of societal changes led to the redlining, the creation of suburbs and segregated neighborhoods? I think one of the things, uh, at least in, in the research that I've done, that I think led to a lot of uh, segregated housing patterns was uh, the Great Migration. Um, and that's when African-Americans uh, started leaving the South by the millions in the early 1900s. And when African-Americans in particular moved to northern cities, midwestern cities, uh, they typically didn't settle in areas that were highly segregated. In fact, it was quite the opposite. And as you started to see more and more African-Americans moving into these cities to escape the apartheid that was uh, occurring in the southern United States, jurisdictions, cities, communities uh, started to enact policies that created segregated housing patterns. Cities would pass law zoning laws that literally said whites can live here, blacks can live here, um, and that eventually was found illegal, but it was kind of the, the start of, of uh, how s segregated housing patterns were created. We saw after World War II the, the advent of the suburb, the first one being Levittown in New York, uh, and that led to a lot of segregation also because there weren't transit uh, lines that went out to a lot of those suburbs, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And then, uh, and lots of those suburbs had restrictive covenants. So when you would go to buy the home, literally in the deed of the home, uh, there was language that's, that restricted who could live there. And typically that was Jews, African-Americans, you know, really anybody that uh, the owner or the developer, for that matter, didn't want living in that community. And what may surprise people is those covenants still exist even in Tucson. They're just not enforced. Absolutely. Uh, those types of restrictive covenants were uh, found to be illegal and are no longer enforceable, but that was one of the ways, particularly in Tucson, uh, where neighborhoods were created uh, to be segregated. Did all of that go away legally? As we said, those covenants still exist on a lot of deeds, but legally they're unenforceable with the creation of the Fair Housing Act? Restrictive covenants were uh, outlawed uh, before the passage of the Fair Housing Act. What led to the passage of the Fair Housing Act? When Johnson was elected president, he was very interested in passing a law that dealt with housing discrimination, which was not illegal at that time, uh, and dealing with the segregated housing patterns that, that we've talked about. Um, so really, it was, it was uh, uh, Johnson's push to, to get that done. Uh, but, you know, from the very beginning, there was lots of resistance. And there were some measures that Johnson wanted passed that were defeated, and he considered those uh, some of his greatest political defeats. Um, and then what eventually got the Fair Housing Act passed was the Kerner Commission report, uh, and then very, very soon after that, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., um, and you saw the eruption of riots in you know, over 100 cities in, in the nation, uh, and the Fair Housing Act came up for a vote. Uh, and it was passed. Is there a continuing legacy in Tucson, uh, even though we didn't have official redlining, of those types of discriminatory practices? Uh, absolutely. I, I guess you can call it a legacy, uh, but uh, one of the failures of the Fair Housing Act is the idea and the language of affirmatively furthering fair housing. That idea of affirmatively furthering fair housing has never really been moved forward in a major way. So the housing patterns that we have today are 
still very directly related to essentially racist housing policies of the 20th century. We're talking with Jay Young. He's the director of the Southwest Fair Housing Council. How do you decide whether to test or push some of these discriminatory practices as with the the Fair Housing Council? The Southwest Fair Housing Council, day in and day out, what we do is we assist people that uh, believe they have experienced illegal housing discrimination. So, you know, if somebody has uh, an instance where they believe that maybe they have uh, been treated differently because of their race or because they have children or other various protected classes, we will do an investigation to see if we can corroborate their story. So uh, that can involve anything from just gathering documents. Those are pretty straightforward. Uh, and then the other thing that we do is basically undercover investigation. And in the fair housing world, it's it's referred as fair housing testing. And that is basically recreating or simulating a housing transaction to try and recreate the story that the person has said. So, you know, if an African-American person comes in and says, I don't think that the apartment complex rented to me because I'm African-American, uh, what we can do is we can take two testers and we would uh, take an African-American tester and a white tester who would be the control tester. And we would send those people out very close to each other within you know 24 to 48 hours to recreate that transaction. And in Arizona, uh, because we're a one-party consent state, we can record those conversations without the approval of the other party. So we are able to use that then as evidence. And what we're really looking for is we're looking for, was the African-American tester treated differently than the white tester? You know, and oftentimes you can see that there are very clear differences in how folks are treated. So again, that's just part of the evidence that we're collecting to try and uh, corroborate or prove the, the allegation that's been presented to us. You say collecting evidence. So if you find there is a problem, what happens next? Well, there are a couple of different things that we can do. We can file a complaint with HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which is a federal government agency. HUD will potentially take the case and they will do a, a review, maybe further investigation. Um, and if they find cause, uh, then there is a con- attempt at conciliation and mediation to see if the issue can be resolved. Uh, and if it's not, then the case can go to an administrative law judge, which will uh, then make a decision. And then the other main way that we uh, resolve these issues is we can file a, a case in federal court, so basically filing a lawsuit. I'm sure all of our listeners would like to think that you're not very busy in your office. This doesn't happen, but I have a feeling that's not the answer. And how does Arizona and Tucson square up nationally? We do still uh, see lots of allegations uh, of discrimination, um, and we see a lot of uh, folks who have indeed experienced illegal housing discrimination. Um, Our office is very busy. I feel like that Um, You know, we're a small office and we serve the entire state of Arizona. And uh, I'd say that there's room for several other fair housing agencies of our size. But the fact of the matter is, is that the funding just isn't there for uh, fair housing work. So um, there's always more work to be done. You know, and I think that we're in in a time politically and socially where people feel more emboldened to be openly discriminatory than they have, you know, 10 or 12 years ago when I started in, in the fair housing world. Um, So, you know, I think we do see a little bit more uh, blatant discrimination than we did in the past. So what needs to happen in the community to make things better? You know, I think continued vigilance and education. 
you know, in our experience, lots of people still don't understand the Fair Housing Act and uh, the rights that that affords them uh, or how to report an act of illegal housing discrimination. Again, the fact that illegal housing discrimination is vastly underreported to me shows that there's a need for considerably more funding to fund, you know, fair housing agencies like the Southwest Fair Housing Council to fund HUD and the uh, Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity at HUD that enforces the Fair Housing Act. It is the law under the Fair Housing Act to affirmatively further fair housing. And again, that means to reduce segregated housing patterns and create integrated neighborhoods of opportunity. And the fact of the matter is that is that we as a nation really have never undertaken that in any significant way. And that continues to be, uh, in my opinion, the biggest failure of the Fair Housing Act. So, you know, it's really the will to uh, understand segregated housing patterns and how that impacts people's lives in so many different areas. Uh, and the fact that we still have a long way to go to create integrated neighborhoods of opportunity that both uh, Dr. King wanted and that the Fair Housing Act is supposedly wanting to create as well. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you. My pleasure. That was Jay Young, the director of the Southwest Fair Housing Council. You can visit our website to see an example of deed restrictions that prohibited homes from being sold to people of certain races in some Tucson neighborhoods. This week, we're taking a look at the roots of housing discrimination in Tucson and its present-day ramifications. Stanley Feldman's family moved to Tucson from New York in 1938, hoping the desert climate would help his mother's health. After a series of rentals, the family moved into today's Colonia Solana. My dad was an interesting businessman. In addition to working really hard, uh, when he got some money, he was not averse to speculating a little. So he'd buy a little real estate. He bought this house, 43 or 44. He bought this house way out in the sticks, a half a mile east of Country Club, one block south of Broadway. Okay. Well, I mean, you had to be crazy to go out that far. All right. So that's where we moved. And it was a really nice house compared to where we had been in a big house. I mean, things got better for us, really better for us. And I would walk to Miles School every day, I think starting the fourth grade, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and then walk home. I do remember one incident when we moved in there. The neighbors came to call on us, a group of them. Uh, and I was sent to bed so I wouldn't hear what was going on. So I got out of bed and laid down at the doorway so I could listen. And what had happened is uh, the subdivision restrictions prohibited uh, the occupation of any property in the subdivision by anyone that is not of the uh, Anglo-Saxon race and the Christian religion. And we were not of the Christian religion. And the neighbors knew that because my father had put up a little uh, a mailbox with a little sign underneath saying Feldman's Jewish name. And they had come to tell us that they didn't want to make any trouble. They weren't going to force us to move. These restrictions were enforceable at the time, by the way. They were not going to make us move, but the name had to come off the mailbox. And uh, either my mother and father asked why, and they were told the neighbors didn't want the name there because it might lead other people to believe that it was okay for Jewish people to move in and that would destroy or imp impair neighborhood values. And so the name had to come off. 
So, as I told you, my mother was a very unique woman, and I remember her saying, of course, we'll be happy to do that, but in fairness, and I'm paraphrasing, but in fairness, she said, I'd like you to know that in my will, I've left this house as a home for the Jewish agent, and I hope you won't mind. <laughs> so that ended that conversation. So we lived there peacefully ever after. That story was also produced by Angus Anderson with the UA Library Special Collection Archive Tucson Oral History Project. Lola Rainey is a community organizer who grew up in Tucson. Her work as a prosecutor, attorney, and member of Black Lives Matter Tucson gives her a unique lens on the housing landscape. If you're coming from someplace else to Tucson, you have one perception. And that is, wow, there's all this open space, people can move, they can do this, they can live everywhere. And that's pretty much the case if you have resources. If you live in Tucson, you have a different perspective. If you grew up in Tucson, you have a different perspective. You can see that there's a racial divide in housing. We know that our schools are some of the most segregated schools uh, because of housing patterns. And why is that? Now, I know that people say, well, that's because uh, people choose to live, de facto segregated. People choose to live with each other. Mm, yes, but... I don't think that, that after all this time, because people like to live in a lot of different places, that you should be able to visibly see a color line that exists in a, in a city as big as Tucson. We should have a lot more integration, a lot more mixing of things. Those are not accidental situations. They reflect policies and practices that continue to reify white supremacy and to shift economic and political power from one group to another. Let's talk about black neighborhoods in Tucson. What are the historically black neighborhoods, and do they still exist? They do in some areas, but most of them have disappeared. Uh, we were talking about the Meyer-Dunbar area as one of the earliest, around the 1900s, earliest black neighborhoods. And that's one a lot of people have heard of. Yes, right. Meyer Street had a, was almost like a red light district, but they had a hotel, they had restaurants, a number of black-owned businesses were located there. And it was, it was in an area of the downtown, old downtown, that was considered to be probably slum-like. But um, Dunbar, which is where the school Dunbar is, was also uh, connected to a small black community that was across the railroad tracks. And then from there, there was also uh, A Mountain, which was called, they called it Little Africa. A Mountain was, was homesteaded by a black family. And then they in turn parceled those uh, acres and sold them to other black families who were able to then build and own homes. Because you have to understand that Tucson was a very segregated and racist community. Black people were not allowed to live in houses in certain communities. There was, first of all, there was restricted covenants. You could not sell to black people. And so since black people could not own land, could not, could not purchase homes, um, they were forced to buy land in places where nobody else wanted. So at the time when A Mountain was homesteaded, it was a just desert. It was nothing there. And it was a place nobody wanted. And that's where they were able to build. And over the years, that, that grew into a, a community. Uh, there was also the Relito Morana area. Arizona was, had one of the big cotton-producing states in the country. Marana was a farming community, and black folks stayed there as uh, migrant farmers, and then some of them stayed on and ended up moving into a, a community called Relito, which was predominantly black, and it still is. Things changed, and the best, um, when we start talking about the Sugar Hill area, which is on Grant and, and First, 
you start seeing black folks moving into homes that were owned by white people, but who are moved out and they were able to get financing. So for the first time after the Fair Housing Act passed and people were required to now provide financing and access to uh, money so that black folks could actually buy well-constructed homes. The Sugar Hill area is where a lot of up-and-coming black folks moved. That's what's called Sugar Hill. It was an upgrade. You also mentioned uh language in deeds and covenants, and we've seen that where houses cannot be sold to black families, to Jewish families. How did that past practice impact the neighborhoods of today? Well, I think that when you start to see where people live and um, also the type of wealth that families are able to accumulate based on the value of their properties, families that had homes in areas that started out being restricted to certain a particular race, particularly if that race was, was white. Those areas became desirable. They, they grew, they appreciated, whereas the homes of people who were, who were living in areas that were undesirable, where the, they were redlined, that meant that their wealth accumulation was impacted. So, for example, black people have like earned 60 percent of the, um, let's say, the earnings of white people now, but they only have 5 percent. 5% of the wealth of white people. A large part of that is due to the segregated government housing policies where they pump lots of money into creating suburban housing for white families, lower, lower uh, working class and middle class white families. But by policy, they would not provide any of that type of financing for black people. That's what those covenants really did. It was a barrier. It was an economic and opportunity barrier. Is Tucson a community or is Tucson a city that has a bunch of historically racially based neighborhoods that have formed little silos? I live in Brownville. I live in Brownville on 22nd Street and Alberta. That's Brownville. <laughs> and you know how you can tell that? Because of our access to things like stores and access to um, even the type of um, technology services that we providers that were there. When you go across Broadway, there's a huge difference in the the quality of services, the types of businesses that are located, the types of access you have to technology, everything changes. Uh, if I want to order different types of foods and restaurants, I want to do that, I'm going to have to either get on a bus or I'm going to have to drive to another area away from where I live because people have made a decision that this is not where we want to put our business, it's not where we want to put our hospitals, it's not where we want our doctor's offices aren't there. We put those places in areas uh, where people with money have access to. We are not putting money into communities that traditionally have been mostly brown. We're talking with Lola Rainey. She's a community organizer here in Tucson. You mentioned crossing Broadway. On the north side of Broadway is the University of Arizona public school land grant supposed to lift everybody up. Does it make a difference on the north side of Broadway when it comes to housing? No, and it doesn't because what's happened is... The University of Arizona is one of the major gentrifiers in our community here because it, it continues to expand. And where it, when it needs to expand, it does what people with money and power do. They find places where they can get cheap land. And where are those places? And areas where there are lots of generally poor people. I am very upset with the university's gentrification of the historically Black South Park area. When you drive down 22nd between Park and Keno Boulevard, you see the new student housing there. 
I grew up playing with people who had homes in that area. That was black. That was a black area. That's South Park. And Public Gardens Hispanic and the Vistas, which is on 36th and Campbell. There was all these very connected neighborhoods. They're also going to be a little big technology center. And just the arrogance and the lack of vision infuriates me because I think of what could be. What could be if we had a real partnership, if we had a real collaboration between the people in the neighborhood and this university? Instead of displacing people, we might have created an environment that would have attracted people, brought the new people in, and saved those neighborhoods. In Tucson, in the words of the Fair Housing Act, how do we affirmatively further fair housing? How can you change people's hearts? Uh, that, is, takes, that takes a lot of time. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Because the truth is that um, as, an, as an attorney, I think that one of the most difficult parts about discrimination is understanding that uh, behind all the laws are individual choices. Someone is choosing at a conscious level to take something from someone that they know they deserve that by law they're entitled to. But I'm going to cheat you because I can. So those are personal choices, individual choices that that are that we try to battle by saying, well, so if we find out that you did it, we can we can penalize you, we can hold you accountable. But you know, but by then the damage is done. So it just comes down to what kind of people are we? What kind of community are we trying to create? And, and unfortunately, I mean, I've been in communities that do work hard at fighting against these types of things. People are conscious. People are committed to making a change and speaking out. And, you know, those are communities that create these wonderful places that people want to live. And Tucson has some wonderful qualities, some wonderful things. But we have a deep, deep-seated history of racism and housing segregation that continues to impact the lives of too many of our, our, our neighbors. And we see it, and we have not done anything about it. We've not hold, held our, our leaders accountable for the lack of vision or lack of, of, of spine, backbone. I think we just get comfortable with the status quo. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down and chatting with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. That was community organizer Lola Rainey. And that's the buzz for this week. This episode was the first of Finding Home, our series on housing. Tune in to hear more on the topic from the AZPM news team next week. Next week on The Buzz, we'll look at what local groups are doing to address affordable housing in Pima County. In July, we'll be hosting a live event focused on gentrification and neighborhood change in Tucson. And we want your thoughts. Call 520-621-5999 and leave us a voicemail about how your neighborhood's changed and how that's affected you. 520-621-5999. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Special thanks this week to Angus Anderson of Archive Tucson. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, Andrea Kelly is the news director, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.